0: Hello, and welcome to the John 315 podcast, the show where we break open the mysteries of the most popular and misunderstood Bible verses and put them back into context. I am your host. They call me Jonathan, bad at vacationing Van Shank, And here is my co-host. They call him Jeremy, good at vacationing Swingle. Now, Jeremy, why do they call you good at vacationing Swingle?
1: Uh, Because I seem to be taking a lot of vacations lately. Um, just earlier this month, (laughs) I was on a nine day vacation in Idaho and, um, it was beautiful. We started up in Coeur d'Alene and went down to Boise and, uh, just found out the other day that I'm going to be in July heading over to Pennsylvania to answer judge for the international competition there, Bible quizzing, um, which is great because there hasn't been any in-person Bible quizzing for a while. So I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, but it does mm-hmm. feel like I'm kind of using all my time off within a several month period here. <laughs> um, so I, I apparently I love my vacations. <laughs> well, what about you? Why are you bad at them?
0: <laughs> well, I was just realizing today. So I'm I'm taking I, I'm I'm also on vacation. We're we're back home visiting some family, and uh, uh, me me and my family are. And uh, I just realizing that I was working this morning trying to finish like, you know, the podcast episodes that we could record it, you know, now on this afternoon. Uh, And I was just realizing like, man, I just am like bad at taking a break. Like even on my like first day of vacation, I'm like working hard in the morning trying to finish writing a podcast episode. I'm just like, man, I'm like so bad at resting and just like taking a break. I mean, me, me and Kaylee talk about it a lot. I think it's the PhD program that just kind of like messed up the way that my brain works so that I just like there's always there's always something to do. There's always something to do. And I, I, I don't know, like even though I've, I've graduated and everything, I think it's going to take me a while to like recondition my brain to be like, no, it's 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 OK. There isn't another thing to do. You don't have to stay up late tonight working on that, you know, whatever the thing is. And uh, anyway. So, so if I right.
1: understand you correctly, university conditioned you? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that I don't think that happens ever, John. You must be crazy.
0: Yeah, yeah, true, true. Yeah. Education. N- none of, systems of that goes are... on
1: at our, our beloved university institutions. <laughs> they would never imagine doing such a thing.
0: No, certainly not. Certainly not. <laughs> They're just teaching you how to think, right? Um
1: <laughs> Exactly. Or or what to think, at least. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, something like that. Uh, but in any case, it's uh, I'm currently not super great at it, but it's it's good. It's something to work on, something to get better at. Cut the chit-chat. Let's crack open the word. Well, today we are going to be talking about a passage from 1 Corinthians. Uh, and this is uh, a, for this episode, we're, we're kind of doing more of a, this is a popular verse, not necessarily a like super misunderstood verse. Um, uh, but but you know th- this popular one is one that a lot of people have uh, uh memorized in the church and and I think with good reason that this is uh this verse can be really encouraging to people who are seeking to like be holy and honor the Lord um and this can be like an encouragement to them when they are uh, experiencing temptation. And uh, so, yeah, so we're, this is a great verse and we're just really looking forward to digging into it. So the verses you may have guessed uh, audience is a first Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13. And it says, no temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may endure it.
1: Yeah, I've definitely heard this verse used a lot, John, uh, kind of as like a last ditch. Um, if I'm tempted in the moment, how do I overcome that temptation? Right. So people memorize this verse to as a means of, of help against that, which is awesome. That's like this is exactly the kind of verse um, to target for memorization, I think, for, for those who are looking to uh, memorize more scripture. Uh but sometimes i think when we when we do that with verses uh we can sometimes forget about their context and we, and we start almost thinking of it as a mantra right like we, if we say this verse then it'll help us in the moment philippians 4:13 is is a huge culprit of that that i can do all things through christ who strengthens me um Really, really has gotten mangled simply because it's such a lovely thing to keep in your brain. (laughs) So it's kind of ironic.
0: Yeah, and 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 as you repeat it, it gets associated with so many other contexts that aren't, you know, the Book of Philippians. That it can kind of get other ideas attached to it that aren't, you know, necessarily what Paul was meaning in that in that context. And I think the same thing is happening here in First Corinthians, where we will like quote this verse a lot to ourselves, and because it's it is contextualized in the moment in a lot of different areas it kind of is it's almost like this is a separate thing from the book of first corinthians
1: oh yeah for sure yeah and by the way that's great that it gets contextualized in lots of different ways that's not bad at all it's only it's only bad if 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 we completely neglect to ever read first corinthians you know um and its context uh of course I, I would say the whole point of knowing the scriptures is so that we can instantiate their meaning in our everyday lives you know um but all that being said i i think um this verse sometimes uh i mean i guess at the very worst it could get used in like a a way to be uh lacking in grace toward other people right like if God has provided the way of escape, then really you should never sin. It's like, well, okay, that's technically true. (laughs) Like we shouldn't, but we do, you know, and and so, and we all do it, right? It's all common to everybody to sin, as Paul says. So therefore, you know, we should be gracious to one another. Um, But, but, you know, I think for the most part, people just understand this verse to be a, you know, assurance that God is not going to allow us to handle more uh, temptation than, than we actually can, can take on, you know, uh, which, yeah, it's a very lovely idea. But there's a lot more going on in this passage, too. So we, <laughs> we're going to talk about it because we love this verse as well, and uh, we want people to love it even more.
0: It's time for
1: The Meat. Now, I don't think we've actually talked much about 1 Corinthians on this podcast. We've referenced it, but I don't know that we've done any episodes uh, just, like, based around a verse, which is kind of interesting because it's such a big book. But,
0: uh. Yeah, well then, how about you give us a quick introduction here, Jeremy? Like, what is the letter of 1 Corinthians kind of about? Like, what's the whole deal?
1: Sure, yeah. Now, as anyone who uh, knows anything about 1 Corinthians might, might think um, already, uh, the, the city of Corinth was definitely a very um, perverse place. <laughs> and so uh, because of that, you know, uh, some discretion for the next few minutes of the podcast is, is, is advised if you're listening with young children. Um, just because of of the way First Corinthians is. <laughs> uh, but basically, Corinth is a very diverse and religious city, and uh, there's many temples, there's lots of worshiping of various Roman gods, um, which involved the offering of sacrifices of meat uh, to idols. And often this practice of worship was also sexual. There was shrine prostitutes. Um, so so that's the kind of world Corinth is is at, right? A very um sexually perverse. Uh, religious cult there right um and that's true of a lot of rome but but Corinth is an especially bad place um uh because it's it's well <laughs> i've heard uh I've heard that the reason for that might be that it's a port city, so like sailors are coming in and out a lot of the time you know um i'm not sure about all the different different arguments for that but uh but it is kind of a unique city uh in the ancient Roman world. Where it's at, Um, and it is a very perverse city. (laughs) Uh, Like as Christians, I think we're we're kind of appalled often at the world around us and the uh, the sexual standards (laughs) of the average American these days. Let's say, Um, but obviously, then you go to somewhere like San Francisco, and it's like substantially more in your face than most of the rest of the nation right so corinth is kind of like the san francisco of rome like rome in general is not great but
0: yeah it's it's not it's not just standard american depraved yeah
1: yeah this is advanced (laughs) right so paul has (laughs) paul has previously gone to corinth in acts 18 i believe he established a church there and he's since heard that things are going south to say the least. <laughs> um, and so he writes this letter because he's, frankly, he's a little ticked off. That's, that's basically the, the long and the short of it. He still loves the Corinthian church, but he wants them to repent and um, uh, come to a fuller knowledge of the gospel and its implications on how we live. Um, and without getting into all the details, kind of like a, a laundry list of some of the issues in Corinth, You've got, of course, I mentioned sexual misconduct in Corinth as a uh, culture, but in the church, it's also a problem. They've imbibed their culture a little too much. In First Corinthians 5, you have a man sleeping with his mother-in-law. Uh, we think his mother-in-law. It says his father's wife, so probably not his biological mother. Otherwise, it would say that. Um, so probably his mother-in-law, and the church is not... Um, excommunicating him or disciplining him at all for it. And Paul is very upset about that. Um, Other issues, constant friction and divisions over who should be the leader, uh, the leaders of this church. Um, You have people arguing that they're better than everyone else because of which spiritual gift they have. People saying speaking in tongues makes them a better uh, Christian or more gifted Christian than others. So you've got a lot of infighting factionalism. Uh, You have Christians who are wielding their freedom in Christ to eat the meat sacrificed to idols, which Paul says is okay because an idol is not actually anything at all. So you can eat the food, it's just food. But the problem is that there were Christians doing this and flaunting their freedom to do it in such a way that was harming the conscience of other Christians who perhaps weren't able to bring themselves to do that sort of thing because of their previous pagan practices. So there were Christians not walking in love toward one another and flaunting their freedom in in ways that were offensive to Paul. Uh, and you even have people getting drunk at communion, <laughs> which is just, that's almost like a, a joke you would see on like a, like Family Guy or something like that. Like, <laughs> right. Or the Simpsons, like some, like kind of a little bit like of a raunchy uh, TV, TV cartoon, like that's making fun of Christianity. Like, oh, haha, people getting drunk at communion. Well, <laughs> It really happened. It's like, <laughs> really happened in Corinth. This is like actually a thing. Yep. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, and 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 it was,
0: And the Corinthians are proud about it, this. Like it's absolutely wild. Yeah,
1: yeah, and they're proud, and it's it's the rich too. So it's, there's also a rich versus poor thing going on at communion. People who have less burdens on them are showing up early and eating and drinking everything, and then the poor have nothing. And Paul is just livid about it. So so this is just some of the stuff that's going on. Um, and it's really something else. Um, it's sort of like, uh, I don't know. It's like a reality show, a TV reality show. Um, I don't know, like one of those, uh, kind of trashy ones where like all the, all the, um, everyone's like mad at each other and fighting, you know, those like daytime talk show hosts where, yeah, where yeah, everybody's totally. like screaming at each other. Yeah. I don't know. That's it, just kind of the feel you get at Corinth. Like, man, things are going wild over there and Paul's not happy about it. <laughs> to, to say the least. So now let's, uh, let's tackle chapter 10 itself. And <laughs> I guess we'll, we'll transition into it by first Corinthians chapter nine, the end of, uh, what's going on in that chapter. Paul has just made his argument that he ought to be paid by the Corinthians because he offered so much spiritual service to them. Um, he, you know, established their church. And so, hey, you guys should pay me. But then he goes on to say, by the way, I'm going to forego this this right that I have to be paid by you because I want to preach the gospel widely and freely. And um, then he draws an analogy between him saying he has this right uh, to saying like, this kind of self-denial of my rights is like an athlete training for a race. And then he gives this, this analogy in this paragraph, at the end of chapter nine, he says in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And then he launches into chapter 10, and it starts with this magical word that we talk about all the time on this podcast, for. (laughs) So, lest I should be disqualified, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. And now he's going to launch into a a history lesson of sorts. Uh, That our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry.
0: Wow, that is an intense history lesson that Paul just kind of like dumps in the middle of this letter here. And and, and it's interesting because Paul is actually continuing uh, like a long heritage of uh, uh, Hebrew writers of uh, using uh, uh, Israel's history to illustrate a point that he's making. Because that, that's really what Paul is doing here in the first section of 1 Corinthians 10, is he is retelling the story of Israel's history, in this case specifically uh, uh, when Israel is like wandering in the wilderness after they've been delivered from Egypt. And he's using that as an example to illustrate a point that he's trying to make here with the the, the verse that we're going to get to of the no temptation has overtaken you, which we'll get to here at the end. Um, But like, this is not something that's original to Paul, like tons of Hebrew writers did this, you know, probably the most famous one being Moses, where, you know, the entire book of Deuteronomy, or I guess a big chunk of the book of Deuteronomy is Moses. Telling again to the people of Israel, this is like right before they go into the Promised Land, and he tells them their own history. He says, like, hey, you know, for the last like 40 years, what we've been doing out in the wilderness, and and so he he gives them a history lesson, and he's making theological points in the book of Deuteronomy as saying, like, you know, these are things happening. This is what those events meant, and so and kind of trying to encourage them of saying, hey, when you go into the Promised Land. Don't do all of that, like, wicked, terrible stuff that you guys did in the wilderness. Uh, you know, be faithful to God. Don't be faithless like you were in the wilderness. And so it's really interesting because Paul is doing almost the exact same thing here in 1 Corinthians 10. He's going through all of these uh, historical examples, and he's doing the Moses thing of saying, hey, like, here is the example from history. Don't do this terrible thing that they did. And that's kind of like the main punchline of, of what Paul is really trying to do in this section. Now it's it's interesting because Paul makes a number of allusions in this section of he he uses a, a lot of kind of rapid fire examples of this of you know uh, uh, some of the examples of like you know don't be idolaters as it is written the people set up or you know sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play don't be sexually immoral as some of them did and twenty three thousand of them fell in a single day so it's like in two verses we're getting like two different stories and so he's just kind of running through rapid fire and hitting the Corinthians with a bunch of examples. Uh, and and it's actually really interesting because he clearly expects the Corinthians to get all of the references that he's making uh, <laughs> as he's kind of like running through uh, all of these examples. And uh, I mean... I'll, I'll be honest, when I was reading this and prepping for the episode today, uh, I definitely did not get all of the examples <laughs> that Paul was making in this section that, you know, he's like clearly like, oh yeah, you guys know this story. You guys know this story. And I'm like, uh, Paul, which, which wait, which story is that one again? Like <laughs> and so it's, it's a little bit convicting for me of like, oh man, you know, I, I talk all the time about how the Old Testament is, is important, but man, I don't know the Old Testament nearly as well as the New Testament authors do. Um and so, and so actually, as I was writing this, I thought it would be fun for us to maybe uh, both to get some more of the context of these stories that Paul is using, and also I think it'd be sort of a fun game, is if uh, me and Jeremy played a little game on the podcast, and and I'll, we'll also let you listeners at home join in with us, uh, I'm going to go through and reread each one of the historical examples that Paul gives here, and then you all, and uh, you know, embodied right now in the person of Jeremy, are going to try to guess... Which Old Testament story Paul is referencing or alluding to in these sections. Uh, and also, you know, try to give as you know many details or pieces of that story as you can remember. Uh, and then finally at the end, the, the the extra challenge is try to guess the reference of the story. And we'll say, you know, double points if you can get like within three chapters of the of the actual occurrence. Uh, I'll tell you, I when I was prepping, I did this and I, I got almost none of the references
1: and only about half the stories, so. <laughs> we'll see if jeremy fares better (laughs) yeah we'll see if my bible degree was worth the money it cost me (laughs) spoiler alert it wasn't no matter how many points i get (laughs) all right so we will all right let's let's do this (laughs) let's jump
0: into the game of guess that old testament (laughs) illusion No, this is great. Okay, so for 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 7 is our first example here. It says, Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, you may notice there are quotations around that because this is actually a quote from the Old Testament, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So, Jeremy, hit me up. What story is this? And what's the reference? And what kind of details can you give me about this occurrence?
1: Yeah, this one is rough because it's actually not an illusion; it's just a literal quote. Oh <laughs> well, um, yeah. Fair so point. there's not a whole lot of excuse. If, <laughs> um, is this what is this what the people are doing with the golden calf when Moses is up on the mountain?
0: Yes, yes, it is. Yeah, this is the story of the uh, golden calf. What do you what do you remember uh, about? Okay. It?
1: Well, so well, yeah. So the they <laughs> well, there's a lot. It's a <laughs> long story, but it's it's like. <laughs> Yeah, when Moses is up on the mountain, they they say, "Make for us gods who will go before us," right? And they give. And Aaron's account of it is that, hey, they gave me all this stuff, and I like threw it in the fire, and out came this calf, right? <laughs> <laughs> but but actually, Aaron's like, you know, carefully constructing the calf, like, oh, I wonder if, oh, did I get the t- did I get the this leg right? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And his then he has that hilarious story to Moses. That's one of my favorite. Aaron is such a, such a, such a dude. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways. uh, So that's the story. Um, And the, so I assume the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. I do remember that kind of that quote from when I was reading Exodus. Um, And uh, I I assume it just means they're kind of like, there's a, there's a form of riotous worship over this calf. Like they're um, literally they're eating and drinking, probably engaging in drunkenness of some sort. Um, and, uh, the rose up to play, I, I, I'm not sure it's just some sort of revelry, um, out of control partying.
0: Yeah. Let me, let me jump in here and give you some, some details on that. So the, the rose up to play is, is actually interesting because it gets translated a number of different ways, depending on kind of which English translation you're, you're doing. And that's actually reflective of the fact that there's a great deal of debate about what that phrase like rose up to play actually means. Um, And you're you're totally right that that there is a there is a way that this could mean just some kind of like festival or like, you you know, some kind of celebration of like singing and dancing. And and so the word play there could mean uh, uh, like party, basically. Um, Some people do argue that it could have kind of like a sexual undertone to it as well. So there might be some kind of like uh, like orgy like behavior that that's taking place here.
1: Um but that's what I was just thinking. Yeah, and I'd never thought of that before. But once you started like saying there was ambiguity in the term, yes. I'm like, oh, it's one it's one of those, isn't it? Yeah, it's where we yeah. don't actually know if they're talking about sex or not.
0: Yes, yeah, yeah. And and um a lot of the argument that I've I did a little bit of reading on this, and it turns out that the that the the Hebrew in the Old Testament is very vague as to what it means. Um and similarly the Greek term that's used here in in First Corinthians is also pretty vague. But a lot of people read into the fact that because Paul uses this example in this context, that he means that there's a sexual component to it. Um, but from what I... Well, can... there was in Corinth. Yes. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> so that just makes sense. Yeah. And, and so... Uh, for... So
1: even if they weren't historically in Israel, Paul would want the Corinthians to keep that in mind, that right. the worship of pagan gods and the, you know the idolatry of the Israelites necessarily carries with it a sexual component if you walk down that path right yes yeah like, exactly well and, and literally like it <laughs> it did the and the israelites engaged in it later in the old testament you know the worship of uh, like the asherah pole and all that like the sacrifice of your own children and these um like sex cults it's, it's absolutely horrifying yeah totally but uh, i never gave the reference though yes yes so so i guess I'll the reference double points Oh man. Um, oh, oh gosh. <laughs> Exodus, Exodus 11. Oh no. Exodus 32 verse six. What? It's that late? Oh yeah. Oh man. It feels like, a. it feels like Exodus is, um, I thought Exodus 32 was like describing the priestly robes and stuff. I- I'm way <laughs> off.
0: Yeah, no, it's Exodus is, is very interesting because it, um, you sort of get a bunch of story and then it kind of takes a break and then dispenses a bunch of law to you. And then it takes another break and goes back to story again and then ends with another chunk of law. And so it it, it is a little bit weird that it feels like it comes very late in the book because there's this whole middle section um, that typically kind of falls out of your head when you're thinking about the story of Exodus.
1: So what you're saying is I almost got the right answer and your criterion of th- within three chapters is just bad. <laughs> yeah within three chapters of narrative you're you're probably good okay. well, my, my only mistake was not knowing which side of the law portion this story was on right yep <laughs> okay yeah yeah. yeah yeah which which side of the 10 commandments is this <laughs> so, so no double points on that one but i'm still doing okay
0: yep yeah yeah yeah, yeah pretty good okay so let's go on to the next one here so 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 8 now. So we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day.
1: Okay, I'm I have a strong hunch on this one. So I think it's when All right. I don't know the name of the person, but there was someone who had taken as a wife a foreign woman meaning a woman who worshiped foreign gods and this dude named phineas slays both him and the wife he's taken with a spear and then and then like him (laughs) and a bunch of other guys kill like twenty three thousand other people um is it it, i mean i don't know if this is that passage but i know that that that's like quite a few people die in that passage is that the one
0: Yeah. So you're, 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 you're right about the Phineas. So this is, this is the story with Phineas. Kind of the, uh, uh, some of the details for you is uh, there, there is a case that the, the people of Israel have kind of settled in their wilderness wanderings, have settled next to the land of Moab. And the, the, uh, this is uh, uh, related to us. And we're told that the daughters of Moab come and invite the people to sacrifice to the Moabite gods. Um, and kind of in the course of this sacrificing to their gods, there is this like sexual component to it of, of sexual immorality. And so the, the like the people of Israel are, are like enticed into worshiping foreign gods in this kind of sexual practice. Um, and, and you're totally right that there's this one guy who takes a Moabite woman uh, and, uh, uh, you know, is, is like, you know, taking her to, to, to marry her. Um, And kind of in some of the backdrop is you have like Phineas and uh, who is uh, uh, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron uh, uh, and Moses. And like these other people are talking about like, oh, man, the people are, you know, participating in this uh, 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 sexual immorality. And uh, because of that, the Lord has sent this plague on the people of Israel. And so like a bunch of people are dying from this plague and it's because of the sexual immorality. Like, what are we going to do? And it's like right as they're discussing this the like dude and the Moabite lady like cruise up and go into
1: their tent uh and so like (laughs) (laughs) it's like almost like a sitcom like a really terrifying sitcom
0: yeah no 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 it's 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 terrible it's you know the 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 exact quotation is like in you know as they're talking about like what are we going to do he says and behold one of the people of israel brought a midianite woman uh to his family in the side of the uh entrance of the tent of meeting so this is like right in front of the tabernacle and it's like you know when phineas son of eliezer the son of aaron sought he rose up and took a you know uh, and left the congregation took a spear and you know he, he plunged it through the two people and and uh uh Executed him. It's it's pretty brutal, but uh, because of that, the Lord relents from his uh, anger against the people of Israel, and the plague lifts. Um, and we're told that the twenty thousand uh, people are killed are, are uh, from this plague, and so that's kind of the reference here.
1: Dang, I gotta say, I mean, even I, I like to pretend I'm zealous for the Lord, but I ha- did not bring a spear with me when I visited San Francisco last. <laughs> oh yikes, dude! Yeah, <laughs> so. Um, so the 23,000, did they fall because of the disease then or because they were killed by Phineas, like zealots?
0: Uh, right. So in, in this particular instance, Phineas only kills the man and the, the Midianite woman. Okay. Um, and I I was, I was wrong when I was reading it. It's a, it's a Midianite woman that he takes, even though it's the daughters of Moab that are, are like leading the people into, to idolatry to begin with um and and it's also really interesting because in the uh in the New Testament Paul says it's 23,000 um but in the Old Testament it says it's 24,000 people. Uh and so I I don't know much of the details about that one and we could maybe talk about discrepancies and numbers another time but just a FYI if you go back and read it um I was wrong it's 24,000
1: in the actual Old Testament passage. Okay. Tw- yeah, 23,000 in the in the at least in the ESV uh we have here. So when it comes to the the First uh, Corinthians passage, okay, so I, I didn't remember the details perfectly, but uh, but I still say that's a point for me on that one because I knew which story it yep, was. Yep,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay,
1: perfect. There's <laughs> another time when some zealous people like kill a bunch of people because um, because of sin. So I I, I must have gotten that mixed up. <laughs> <Yeah. clears throat> okay. I won't comment on that because there may or may not be a reference to that later. Who knows? So this one, I have no idea how I'm going to get this one. Um, it's numbers, I'm sure. Hey, nice, nice. Uh, uh, um, based on the context, I, uh, I forget how many chapters of, of like the encampments there are. They're getting numbers. I'm going to just say like numbers 17. Uh, nice. It's numbers 25. Oh, okay. So... I wasn't too far off. Yep. <laughs> All right. No double points, but uh, no double I, points. Just single points on well, this one. two for two on the illusion part. All right. So.
0: <laughs> for sure. Okay, so let's go to the next one here. So first Corinthians chapter ten, verse nine. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents.
1: Well, yeah, okay. So luckily because of um John three sixteen and the context there I think I know what this is talking about <laughs> which is funny because we still haven't done an episode on John three sixteen on our John 3 fifteen podcast
0: yeah we're we're just waiting for enough emails from listeners asking us to do it
1: <laughs> so this is um what prompted it so so all so what I remember is there's serpents who are biting people and they're dying unless they look at Moses holding up the the bronze serpent and then when they see that they're cured I can't remember the exact sin of Israel that prompted that plague of snakes though um let me think uh is it when they're complaining about uh the 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 lack of water and Moses hits the rock. Uh so it is it's actually immediately
0: after that story in uh in in the in the 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 account. So you get the story where Moses hits the the rock with a stick and then it's after that the people are wandering around and they're in kind of like a dry place and you're you're totally right that they are complaining about water. So I'll I'll give you the the reference that they're, you know, and the people spoke out against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us uh, out of Egypt to die in the wilderness, for there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. And so then the Lord sent fiery serpents and, you know, <laughs> on from there. And you basically got the rest of the details right.
1: Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I think I did about as well as I could with the, <laughs> with where, where it's at. Okay. So reference. <laughs> oh, dude. <laughs> I know I know that the manna is named in Exodus. I can't, I don't even know which side of that law portion it's on though. Um, I'm going to say Exodus 14. Ooh, no numbers 21. Oh, I'm way off. Okay. I'm, I, I yeah. <laughs> All right. That's, that's doesn't even, you should take off half a point. I got <laughs> for sure. For sure. Well, okay. So there, there's, there's a couple other things to just point out
0: about this verse and this reference that are, um, I, I think are particularly interesting. Uh, and so one of them is the uh, uh, actual occurrence of in, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 9, it says we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did. Uh, it turns out that actually the, the word Christ there is a, a textual variant in the New Testament, which just means that uh, uh, in our, our manuscripts of the, the New Testament and are like copies on like, you know, papyrus and scrolls and stuff like that. Sometimes the manuscript says Christ put Christ to the test and sometimes the manuscript will say uh, put the Lord to the test Um, and so it's just a uh, it's interesting that there's actual uh, um, there's debate about whether it should be put Christ to the test or put the Lord to the test. Um, and if people are interested, maybe we could do an episode where we talk about textual variants and stuff like that. I'll just give it as a little teaser and oh, we should. something to, to point out. Yeah, we people. totally should dude. Yeah. If if anybody's interested, we can come back and talk about this verse. Cause it is really, really interesting, but, um, I guess I don't really want to spend too long on it. It's
1: interesting that he says Christ, um, that reminds me of Jude uh in the book of jude it says that jesus saved a people out of the land of egypt and afterward destroyed those who did not believe so it's talking actually about the same kind of stuff we're talking about in this first corinthians passage there does seem to be this assuming these aren't textual variants there does seem to be this uh, strand of thought um among the apostles that like even though it was yahweh um who did this that that actually the one who is interacting with the israelites in this really like Crazy, like miraculous way, was actually Jesus, the the, the person of the Son, um, which is an interesting, an interesting take. Yeah, for sure. On the part of the apostles, I mean, I, I might be reading too much into what they said, but uh, but it's interesting. I I can't think of, I can't think of another place where, like another place in the Old Testament where God is described that way as Jesus doing it in the New Testament. That's all I can think off the top of my head. Yeah,
0: interesting. Uh, I I would. Um, I, I think not in, yeah, I can't think of any other examples that are quite as obvious as like this one in the Jude passage. But in this case, it is, um, I tend to think it, it, it like it should be rendered Christ specifically because just a few verses earlier, Paul is saying, you know, they drank from the rock and that rock was Christ. And so mm-hmm. we sort of, Paul is already giving you these ideas of the person providing the provision is Jesus, like specifically Jesus. Um, and Uh, and and so in this case, it would make sense for him to sort of continue with that thought.
1: It's almost like the context helps us understand it. (laughs) Almost, almost. All right. So I'm three for three. Let's do
0: this. All right. So the next one that we get is in first Corinthians 10 verse 10 saying, nor grumble
1: as some of
0: them did and were destroyed by the destroyer.
1: All right. I have no (laughs) clue on this one. Um. Well, so I do know that in the NIV, it's rendered as the destroying angel, which is probably an interpretation, mm-hmm. um, because I would bet you the Greek word is just the destroyer, uh, and I, I could say that rather confidently, even though I don't have the Greek in front of me, because I know how the NIV does things. <laughs> um, <laughs> you are 100% correct about that, Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> so, destroyed by the destroyer. Um well, they grumble like 20 times in <laughs> Exodus and Numbers. So that's what seems like why this is so tough. And like the destroyer, well, they get destroyed in lots of ways. I don't remember, specific- <laughs> I don't remember specifically like what uh, like some entity called the destroyer doing it. So I'm just going to say it's when the 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 earth opens up and swallows those guys just because I like that passage. And that's the best guess I have okay um, so which which guys oh gosh okay uh which guys um <laughs> I mean, the israelites but like which ones <laughs> oh so oh 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 um, the ground opens up multiple times <laughs> it does there's more than one <laughs> Oh, dude, yeah. I forgot. Uh, it's kind of like that weird specific story in Genesis where, like, Abraham says she's not my wife about Sarah. And then, like, his oh, yeah. his son does the same thing. And you're like, wait, I just read this. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, I, I forgot that it happens more than once. Um, At least I'm pretty sure. Okay. <laughs> uh, As some of them did and were destroyed by the Destroyer. Ah. I don't know. Okay, which guys? Um, they they were murmuring against Moses because they didn't like him. His beard was funny. I don't know, man. That's the best I got on this one. Okay, what, okay. What is the answer? Dude, you you guessed so close on this one. So it
0: uh, uh so one so I you're now making me doubt whether multiple people get swallowed by the earth. But there is at least one instance. I'm pretty sure Aiken and his family are also swallowed by the earth in uh, uh
1: yes but that's not in the Pentateuch. oh oh sure okay, so okay that's in Joshua right yeah yeah that that's in Joshua yeah so I thought of that but I'm like wait that can't be <laughs> it
0: <laughs> okay so at least in terms of of uh uh the you know first five book books of Moses, uh <laughs> instances of of getting swallowed by the the, the ground. That's specifically uh, Korah and his crew of uh, Levites oh, who yeah. try to uh, displace Aaron as priests.
1: Yes, yes. Korah's rebellion. How yep. did I forget? <laughs> that also gets mentioned in Jude, I think. Funny enough.
0: Oh, interesting. okay. yeah, so but um, but it, so the reason why I say it's close is because this instance is not actually referring to Korah and his crew of people. And it's also not referring to the people who followed Korah and started practicing in front of the temple and then were or in front of the tabernacle and then got consumed by fire, which happened immediately after that. But it's actually referring to what happens to the Israelites the day after the rebellion with Korah. This, this one's super interesting. And um, I'm relying on some uh, much smarter people than I to interpret this very vague reference. So uh, we're just gonna believe for the moment that the my research is accurate on this one. Uh, but if you have a good reason why it's actually a different story, go ahead and email me and I'll I'll publish a retraction. But uh so it, in this case, it's so, Korah and the, you know, his Levites, they do this uh, uh, rebellion. They try to displace Aaron. God judges them. Korah gets swallowed up by the earth. All of the Levites who uh, try to do this thing get consumed by fire that comes out from the tabernacle. And then the next day, the uh, uh, people of Israel gather together. And uh, it says that they began grumbling against Moses saying, uh, uh, "Let me let me find where it is. Uh Ah, so they, they begin grumbling against Moses and Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. Um and then another plague uh, uh, strikes the people and a bunch of them die uh, and it's only Aaron or so Moses tells Aaron to go get a like a censer from the altar and to uh, like waft incense over the people as a way of making atonement for them and, and it, I won't get into too much of the story it's actually very cool you should totally read it um, but that's the actual reference that's happening right here wow so do you want to now I've learned. Do you want to try to guess the reference or should I just tell you?
1: Uh, well, I might as well try to get those bonus points, right?
0: You're, you're sitting at quarter credit right now for getting the ground swallowing.
1: <laughs> Numbers
0: 32. Ooh, nice try. Numbers 16. Ah, uh,
1: Come on, Paul. You could have done this in like chronological order. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Just jumping all around. So I didn't get, so, so what's that? Like three and a half points because I didn't quite get the last one.
0: Yep. Yeah, we'll go with we'll go with okay. three and a half.
1: I was like, kind of. I had an idea that was related to it.
0: <laughs> so, Jeremy, I'm going to ask you then. Having just guessed all of these stories, I want to, uh, you know, I w- want you to uh, uh, speculate here. What do you think is the common like set of themes that are going on in these stories? Like, like why, like why is Paul pulling out these particular stories as an example of the, you know, what he's trying to do? So, like, kind of what's common about these things that Paul's bringing up for us?
1: Well. I think one thing that that jumps out to me is all of these are sort of like landmark moments in God's dealing with his people where there is some sort of widespread rebellion um like there is not um like you do have individuals who are part of it, like phineas but but they're they're the guys like fixing the problem <laughs> like Moses right um also obviously, but it seems to be that like as a corporate body um the people of israel have rejected yahweh from being lord over them um right and and, and so and it seems to be the whole the whole journey right he he gives these examples from the whole journey that the israelites were on
0: yeah from the beginning all the way until right up until they enter the yeah and and
1: these are like these are paul's points as to like his his, because he says earlier in first corinthians 10 that even though all these people went through all these same miracles the the spiritual rock of christ drinking and eating the same food and drink right and being baptized in the cloud and in the sea that's a fascinating reference we don't have time for today by the way (laughs) but but, um maybe we'll get to it in our baptism episode it's a baptism throwdown that we haven't done yet yeah um yeah yeah it's on the horizon folks (laughs) so um so yeah so so all of these people interacted with god in these same miracles um And nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. He scattered their bodies over the wilderness as they perished at the hand of the Lord for their sin time and time again. And it's not one person. It's the whole body of people. And Moses is basically the only thing keeping God from just wiping them off the face of the earth. Moses and and a few other dudes like Phineas.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, and and uh, and I love that that second point that you bring up there of it being in fact the individual who uh, uh, delivers the people. So it's like you know it's Phineas's uh, zealous act or it's Moses standing as uh, uh, you know between the people and the tent of meeting in in the last story. And and I totally I encourage the audience to go read all of the details of the story and see that it like it really is this very interesting like sin of the entire community for which some of them die and then it is the like individual who like delivers the people from that uh, uh and like has God re- relent from his from his punishment
1: yeah okay so so i think i see where you're going with this um and i don't want to give a, give anything away too quickly but <laughs> let me guess in 1 corinthians 10:13 when it says no temptation has overtaken you yep except that which is common to man. Let me guess, that's a Greek <laughs> plural you, not uh-huh. a singular you, right? Yes. Okay. Yes, I it is. I have yes, not it is. At the that's Greek. great. John prepared most of this episode, but <laughs> I am digging into his brain here. <laughs> <laughs> your 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 biblical spidey sense is tingling. <laughs> yes. I see where you're going with this. Okay, cool.
0: I love it. Right, right. So what it really seems like Paul is doing by bringing up these examples is what he wants to have in our minds as we're coming into uh, uh, the, you know, verses 12, 13 and, and on from there is thinking, oh, the like we have the covenantal people of God. So this is like the community that God has chosen and has chosen to interact with. Um, and and we kind of get that from what what Jeremy was saying before of like, you know, they were all baptized into uh, you know, Moses and the cloud and the sea. And you know, like that whole section is, this is all the, the language of the people being joined in, and collected together as as one people, uh, which is to mirror us in the church as also being collected together into one like covenantal people of God. And so so Paul comes into this as saying like, hey, there's the, the, the group of people, which in this example is the Israelites. And then the application for you is as the church. Uh, and they... Corporately participated in these sinful actions, and God judged them for it. and And that's kind of the the, the big thing, the big punchline that uh, uh, that Paul is kind of building to right here is. So he says, you know, Church of Corinth, you know, he, he, kind of his idea is guard yourselves, the church, against the same kinds of idolatry, blasphemy, sexual immorality that the people of Israel like fell into as the practice of the community. And like, and that's really what you should be guarding yourselves against is kind of what the, what the context is leading up to. And, and, you know, to bolster that point, because that's exactly where Paul lands uh, starting in verses 14 and going on from there. Uh, uh, chapter, this is uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14, you know, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people, judge for yourselves. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And and I'm probably not going to keep reading from there, but I encourage you to finish the, the chapter. And he then goes and makes very explicit, all the connections that we're talking about right here of you as the church are also formed together. So flee from the kind of idolatry that the corporate people of God in the wilderness wanderings fell into and were judged for.
1: And you participate in the blood and body of Christ as a corporate body, not as an individual. Like if there's anything that's about the corporate body of the church, it's the Lord's Supper.
0: Yes. Yeah, totally. This is this is the act that we do of being joined together as one people being, you know, unified
1: with Christ. Baptism is what the individual does to be initiated into the covenant community. And that's even the case for the old covenant, because the people were baptized, quote unquote, as they walked through the Red Sea. I think that's the the point of that that verse. Although, again, we don't have time to get into all the details. It's a great verse. but But so water, that ritual initiates people into the body. But once you're a part of the body, the Lord's Supper is how you participate in that body, right? Or eating the same spiritual food and drink. So that's the idea here, I think. But once you're in the body, it's not just you anymore. Like me and you, like I'm my private Christian, right? And I I just have my religion in my house. No, it's the, the corporate body of assembled believers.
0: Right, and, and that it's that Anyways <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and, and there very much is this this undertone of of the group together. Except that we have verses eleven through thirteen, which kind of take a bit of a strange detour from the rest of the trajectory of the passage. Um and so let's let's just like reread verses eleven through thirteen here. It says You know, now these things, the examples of uh, the the faithlessness of the Israelites, happened to them as an example, but but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may endure it. And so what's really interesting here is that transition verse of verse 12 of, therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. Because the pronouns there are all singular pronouns. You know, let, you know, the, you know, the the person let, you know, if he, if this individual thinks that he is standing firm, let him take care lest he, this individual fall. But then as Jeremy, your spidey sense was tingling and you are correct. When we then go to the next verse, in verse 13 when it says no temptation has overtaken you the you there is a plural you and so paul kind of does this kind of flip flop of he's first of all talking about the group as a whole and then for one verse uses singular pronouns to talk to like in, in the the prototypical individual in the community And then switches back to talking about plural pronouns or using plural pronouns again to once again sort of address the community as a whole. So, Jeremy, what do you what do you think might be going on there with this like flip flop that Paul is doing right before we get into verse 13?
1: I've got you cornered, John. I think I'm picking up what you're putting down. Um, So the there is a sense in which the whole corporate group of people bears culpability for sin or for righteousness for that matter. But we're talking about sin. There's, there's a sense in which everybody bears, bears that burden. But there's also a sense, a sense in which each individual is the one actually culpable for their own individual sin. And on the, it is only on that individual basis by whom God judges each of us when it comes to our status before him, right? Whether we fall or not, whether we go to heaven or hell to, you know, to talk about ultimate destiny. So, and I think this is why in earlier in the passage, Paul says all ate the same food, all ate the same drink, all were baptized. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. So he goes from the word all to the word most earlier in the chapter. And I think this is Paul trying to, I don't think Paul is thinking about this consciously actually in this passage. I think this is what's going on just in his like subconscious mind. This is how he understands the people of God at base level. And this this is flowing out in the language he uses. He's saying like, as a body, we all have to deal with the sin that's in our midst. As individuals, we can do what we need to do to make the right changes. And we can take heed lest we fall as individuals and let God be true though everyone were a liar. At the end, we can stand alone even if the body falls. I think that's where you're going with this.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, th- I think Paul really is trying to hit that, that there's a sense in which it's the community that sins, but Paul seems to be highlighting the fact that, I mean, it, it, it's a bit of a, a phrase, but I'm going to use it anyway, that like, you know, communities are made up of individuals and that the, I, I, I think there's kind of two things that he's saying, that on the one hand, you as the individual can kind of get swept up in the trajectory of the community that And I think this is kind of what he's saying of like, you know, if you think that you are standing firm, take heed lest you fall. And it, it, I, I think he's kind of emphasizing this idea of like the, you know, the community has a trajectory and, you know, sure, you're part of the community. You might think that you're standing firm, but there isn't the guarantee that the community is going to like do the right thing necessarily. And so you need to be taking care like as your person, uh, uh you know, that you are not one of the, you know, that you don't find yourself as one of the Israelites who is, you know, participating in this sexual immorality with the, you know, the daughters of Moab or, you know, to use that sort of example.
1: Well, and like we were saying, when we were going through those historical examples, th- there's a very real sense, and this is a, a complicated argument to build, so I won't do it here, but I definitely think the, the Pentateuch teaches that were it not for Moses interceding for the people, they would just have been obliterated off the face of the earth by God way early in the process. Like Moses, Moses right. is literally the reason he doesn't. <laughs> so, so, yeah, know. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, totally. and Phineas in that one passage. And I'm sure there's others I'm not thinking of who, who are heroes of the people. But so, at, at the risk of sounding like a motivational evangelical uh, megachurch pastor, <laughs> it almost sounds like, like the, a lesson we could draw here is you should be like Moses and Phineas. Like, you should yeah. not be a part of the mob. And if the the body is, as you said, going in the wrong trajectory, well, you're not culpable for that unless you're sinning along with them. But you are responsible for steering the ship in the right direction. It's not your culpability, but your responsibility. Right. That's kind of how I'm thinking about it.
0: Mm-hmm. No, no, yeah, no. I, I think I think you're totally on point there with with the what we're really getting from this verse twelve here. Dude, this is killer. <laughs> I love this. This is so good. <laughs> I know it's, I'm I've loving this. It's it you're you're also helping me because uh uh I, I didn't catch the it was the individual the the you know who who delivers the people thing though and I think that kind of
1: rounds out the the idea here perfectly. So like thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> well dude, yeah, and we could even if we wanted to tease out this idea, I mean just go to Joshua and judges. Like mm-hmm. uh Esther, right? Um, yeah. King David, Samuel. But like I'm, I'm particularly thinking about the judges. The like, the whole point of that cycle of judges is like, the people sinned. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. God raised up a judge to deliver his people. It's all about these individual yeah. figures who rise up to the occasion and deliver the people. That's yep. just it's incredible.
0: So I think we've spent a a long time talking about the context, and and I think we've hit a lot of the major themes that are going to help us to understand really fully what's happening here in verse 13, uh, when we kind of come to this, you know, no temptation has overtaken you. But I, there's one more piece that I really want. Well, I, I, actually, maybe I'll do it this way. Let's just kind of read the verse again and start making some observations and maybe asking a few questions that we can tease out for the rest of the episode here. So, Jeremy, could you could you just read us the verse one more time, just straight and clean here?
1: For Sure. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Nice.
0: Yeah. And so the first kind of observation, uh, we kind of already mentioned it before, is that the yous here are plural pronouns. So it, you know, we could render it like no temptation has overtaken y'all, except what is common to, uh, common to man or common to mankind, as some people render it. Uh, but kind of one of the, one of the things that sticks out to me is I, I think this verse is actually kind of a little bit strange. Uh, and I'm going to make the argument for it because Paul seems to be blending two somewhat different metaphors uh, uh, with, you know, with one another in this verse. So it's like, on the one hand, we have this, you know, quote unquote, temptation that has overtaken someone, or it's like, it's overtaking you. Now the, just a kind of a quick aside here that that greek word that's that's here translated overtaken is actually rendered very consistently among english translations as overtaken there's there's a very wide consensus that that is in fact what the word means with the notable exception of the niv 1984 which renders it seized it says you know no temptation has seized you except what is common to mankind and i think that you know it together we can maybe infer a little bit of like what that word actually means by kind of seeing this this translate the these translational choices and kind of the idea is that temptation v- is viewed here as like um I don't know it, it, it's almost like it's waiting for you or it's like seeking to ambush you or or chase you down and take hold of you uh you know it makes me think of uh uh like the the way that God describes sin, or temptation that Cain is feeling, like back in the book of, of uh, Genesis, it says, you know, God says sin is crouching at your door, you know, speaking to to Cain, and kind of the idea is sin is like this this animal that's like lying in wait to to to, to pounce on and consume Cain, uh, you know. Or I also think about the passage in First Peter that says like the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. Um, and, and so there's kind of this image of, of, of sin and temptation are these things that are like seeking to like take hold of you or like spring on you when you're not aware. Uh, and so that, that's kind of like one whole kind of metaphor that's being used here by Paul, this idea of something trying to, to ambush
1: you. And I like that idea. I like that idea, too. It's like the, the victim is unsuspecting, Right. And that's like the whole idea why Paul says, take heed, right? In other words, saying paying attention to the scriptures that were written down as examples for you is how you become more suspecting of these traps, right?
0: Yes, totally, totally. And, and, and this metaphor actually works with the second half of the verse as well, where we see that God provides the way of escape is kind of the way that it's rendered. And that makes a lot of sense with this idea of something ambushing you, that it's like, you know, temptation leaps out of the bushes and tries to grab a hold. And there's God saying like, oh, hey, run this way and you can you can get out of here uh, is, you know, if I could uh, kind of be a little bit flippant there. But th- that's sort of the idea is this sin grabs you and God provides the way for you to escape that like, seizure
1: that has happened. If I can also make an extra comment on the y'all thing, the, the plural you. Oh, yeah, yeah, go for it. Because he's talking to, like, the whole body of Corinth, and he's talking about these sins that they have been committing that were also committed in the past. I think there's also an element of this which is like, hey, Corinth, I know you live in, like, the the hotbed of sexual immorality and all and you probably think you've got it so bad just like believers in San Francisco today do <laughs> right you think you got it so bad but do you remember when 23,000 Israelites died in the wilderness because of sexual immorality <laughs> like yeah yeah like they they did not have a Corinth to make them sin so it's almost like an element of saying like look everybody deals with this you don't get an excuse because you live in Corinth yeah right? yeah totally uh, there's almost that element of it i i, I think and you know everybody everybody deals with the same stuff he's saying the israelites did in their era and you do in yours yeah, too yeah
0: and 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 drawing that connection back to the israelites is good because again the idea is that this is in paul's mind kind of a corporate you that he's thinking of or at least that's what the context would seem to dictate uh and so this idea of temptation seizing or you know this like you know this thing like grabbing hold of it's not like you know bob the uh uh like christian in corinth it is the church of
1: corinth being overtaken by a temptation yeah such as you know overtaken in the sense that nobody is talking about the fact that people are getting drunk at the lord's supper nobody is talking about this guy who's you know sleeping with his mother-in-law and maybe showing up to church with her or something you know <laughs> Like, we just don't deal with it. We don't handle it.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's almost like a like a group think or like a mob mentality that like comes upon the community. It's, you know, this like, and, and in, in the uh, uh, and in the examples of the Old Testament, it's like the people, you know, start grumbling. And, and like, I'm not sure if you've felt that when you're like part of a group and the group starts sort of doing a thing and you kind of get carried into it as an individual and you like find yourself participating in the thing that the group is doing. And so I think that is, that's the image. It like seizes hold of the community and people are like whisked into it, into participating in it.
1: Yeah, dude, that's, that's how mobs work.
0: (laughs) So, so that's one whole metaphor that Paul is, is using this idea of like being overtaken or seized. But then on the other hand, kind of the other half of the phrases are seem to be kind of communicating something different. So like on the one hand we have God, he is like not letting you be tempted beyond your ability. Um, but he is providing, you know, and he provides the way of escape and we're told so that you can endure it, it being like the tem- the temptation that's here. So it, it's a little bit weird because, uh, uh, you know, it kind of makes me ask, uh, are we going to escape the temptation or are we going to bear the temptation? Because <laughs> it's like if God is not letting us be tempted beyond our ability, that's like a state that you're in of like, I am in the state of being tempted and Uh, Like, you know, and I'm being empowered to be able to endure that state, which almost seems to be kind of a different idea than something seizing me and me escaping from it. Does does that make sense at all, Jeremy?
1: Yeah, I think so. So I just kind
0: of want to let that hang a little bit in the air as we're continuing to investigate this verse, kind of these two sort of ideas of is it something that we experience in perpetuity as a community that we bear with? Or is it something that seizes hold of us and then we escape from it? I kind of want to just like let people grab a hold of those two things. One of the other kind of points I want to point out about this verse is just ask the question like, you know, where is this temptation coming from? Uh, because like on the one hand, it says like, you know, God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear uh, and or beyond what you were able. Sorry. Uh, and and it, that seems to kind of be putting a little bit of distance uh, between God and the cause of this temptation, it's not like God is tempting you. It's say like He will not let you be tempted. Uh, so there's kind of a little bit of distancing of God from the cause of the temptation. There, it's like He's not doing it; He's just letting it happen. You know, but on the other hand, this the next phrase says, you know, with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape. Which you know, the word "also" right there, it's like again, you can you can read it in a bunch of different translations, and they all kind of render it basically the same way. But the idea is like if he's providing the way of escape also, you, you know, the thing before it has to also be something that he's providing. So it's it's almost saying like, you know, God provides the temptation and he also provides the way of escape, which does kind of seem to be that like God is providing this thing. So it, it kind of elicits a bit of a question to me of is is God causing it or not causing it is do, what
1: like where do you kind of sit with that, Jeremy? What do you think? Well, it's kind of grammatically ambiguous. Um, I think it could be saying with like God will provide with the temptation, the way of escape. It could also be saying that like, because Greek is kind of like this. It could also be saying like, along with the temptation, like when it happens, God will provide this. Yeah. Um, now I'm actually really curious. I'm going to look up the verse. <laughs> in Greek. I didn't plan on doing this. I'm really curious to see what that construction is because it could go either way in the ESV sunto pyrosmo yeah with the temptation hmm because the the NIV does render it when you are tempted he will provide a way out but that is a bit of an interpretation so the ESV just does the very literal rendering here which is definitely the right way to translate it oh the ESV is always better when you look into it um but uh so with yeah that's kind of ambiguous then I'm not sure what whether it's um <laughs> saying god provides the temptation or not what I do know is James says god tempts no one <laughs> Um so there is a a bit of a well it seems like there's a bit of a difficulty with the word temptation perhaps perhaps there's multiple meanings of it Um well what do you think about that John <laughs> Yeah, no, I I and I think I think
0: really that is where a lot of this difficulty comes from is that we as a contemporary audience layer on top of the word temptation a lot of things and a lot of ideas that doesn't necessarily match perfectly with what the actual Greek word means. So, I you know we we try not to do too much in this podcast of like you know be like trying to appeal to the Greek and like going back to the original language because I mean most of the time you don't really need to do that to get a good understanding of what the Bible is saying but in this case I, I think we really do want to dig into it a little bit just as a way of understanding better because I'm pretty happy with most of what we've been able to get so far from just looking at the context of the verse but I'm just really curious to dig into this idea of temptation specifically uh, just as a way of kind of expanding our horizons a little bit to maybe understand some biblical theology a little bit. So at this point, we've kind of mostly talked about a lot of the pieces of the verse, and we're going to transition here and really do a bit of a word study on this idea of temptation and how it's used in the New Testament.
1: What immediately comes to mind, I know that the the Greek word for temptation is pyrosmos, and it... It has some different shades of meaning. It can mean like a temptation, which we think of specifically like fighting an urge to sin. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's like a desire to do something wrong.
1: Right. Yeah, but it could also mean a trial, like it's a, it's a it's a test, right? Um, like you could say like, "Wow, I'm I'm going through a tough like I got fired from my job and we lost the house or whatever. This is a real temptation." Like We wouldn't say that in English, but you could use the word pyrosmos in that way. I think the idea behind the, the different shades of meaning being that way, the way the word developed, is just that like going through tough times is a, a cause of sin for some, right? Can, it can be a cause for sin or a cause for righteousness in the face of the, the tough circumstance. So because of that, it's a sort of test. It's a sort of trial, right? It's to prove your mettle, see, uh, see if you can handle... Um, staying faithful under pressure, right? Yeah, yeah, totally.
0: And and so, it, and this idea of like a test or a trial, kind of the reason why we're using those words is there are a bunch of instances in the New Testament where parasmos is translated as test or trial. I mean, it, it's basically any, almost any time in the New Testament that you see the word test, tested, tried, trial, like any of those words, the underlying Greek is some derivative root of parasmos. And so what we're what we're actually going to do is go through and look at a number of these instances to try to figure out a, more of a more full, fully fleshed out understanding of the way that this this word is used and then kind of try to bring it back and say, well, okay, this is how the word gets used in a lot of contexts. So what does it really mean in this particular context in First Corinthians 10? So with that, uh, kind of one of the first ways that we see parasmas getting used is to describe some kind of like suffering that a person is undergoing uh, which is and but but it's it's not just like you're having a tough time but that the kind of part of the idea is that the suffering itself is a like a test or a trial it's like something that you can pass or fail it's like you know you're going to get a grade at the end of the suffering is is sort of the idea with it. So let's go, like, let's hit a couple examples of this here. So one of the first ones is uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, verses 12 through 15. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Um If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. And then the the section goes on from there. So the words like fiery trial and, you know, to come upon you, to test you. Those are both derivatives of the same underlying Greek word that we're experiencing or that we're talking about right here.
1: Well, also there's um, Galatians chapter four verses 13 and 14, where Paul describes his illness as a kind of test. Um, And he says, you know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn nor despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So here it seems that Paul is saying something along the lines of like, my illness brought some hardship to you right and, and you you were able to provide for my needs right even though it was it was a difficulty upon you and also you have um, yeah there's a lot of different kinds of things first uh, Peter chapter one uh, you already mentioned chapter four but but he says uh, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith uh, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So those trials, which we later find out in First Peter, are these like sufferings, right? Um, persecutions, even that's the mechanism by which your faith is proven genuine.
0: Yeah, yeah. And but at the same time, the this this testing, these trials that happen uh, in on the one hand are a mechanism of like proving genuineness of faith. But it turns out they're also a mechanism of proving the ingenuineness of faith. Uh, We kind of see this when Jesus explains the parable of the soils. Um, Remember, this is the one where, you know, the sower throws seed um, on a bunch of different soils, and it's like only in the good soil does the plant actually flourish. And as he's explaining, he says, you know, one of the—I'm kind of paraphrasing a little bit from Luke 8 uh, 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 here—and he says, uh, you know, the ones, these are the seeds that uh, fall along the path, are those who hear— but then the devil comes and takes the word from their hearts that they may not believe it and be saved. And the ones, these are again, the seeds that fall on the rocks, are those who hear the word, receive it with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a while and in the time of testing, fall away. And so Jesus is, you know, kind of saying this idea that there are these testings that come of one's faith. And, you know, for some people that it is the mechanism that causes them to fall away and in this sense show that they were not in fact genuine in their in their faithfulness so the point here really is that this test um, the suffering that gets talked a lot about is it's something that has a purpose to it it's not just like meaningless suffering or like an oh bummer you are kind of experiencing this hardship isn't that like challenging but that there that, that like god has an intention with that suffering that you know kind of the whole idea of of something being a test is that there is some objective result that's going to be from it. And so in this case, it's, you know, it's to prove the genuineness of someone's faith or to cause someone to grow in faith, as we see in the beginning of the book of James. And there's another, another, there's another, uh, a number of other instances where this idea of suffering is something that like causes a result. And that the, so in that sense that the suffering has a purpose to it. But there are other utilizations of uh, this word parosmos as well, where it's not necessarily like a suffering that someone is experiencing, uh, but it, it literally is like the desire to sin. So rather than a test, in this case, it really is like the English word temptation. But in a lot of these cases, the temptation is still being like it, it still is something that has a purpose to it. Uh, That the like temptation itself is the test. So rather than the suffering being the test, it's a temptation that is a test itself. So kind of one example of this would be in Luke chapter four, uh, where, you know, Jesus, you know, it says he full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Uh, and then it, you know, goes on from there to talk about Jesus's, you know, 40 days of, of fasting. And this is kind of like a classical example of, you know, something, you know, incitement to sin. Uh, this idea of temptation that, you know, Jesus is in the wilderness and the devil is like coming to him and trying to get him to do these things that would be unrighteous. Uh, and and here Jesus is viewed as unlike the Israelites in, you know, who wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and were shown to be faithless toward God in their sin. Christ is shown to be righteous when he goes through the same kind of testing in the wilderness. And the, like, the mechanism of that test is this temptation that the devil is providing to him. Uh, we're, we're given a little bit more of that explicit theology in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, where it says, you know, for we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was uh, in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. And so that idea that Jesus was tempted, but he didn't sin. So that temptation is this like evidencing of Jesus's righteousness. And so, I I mean, I guess maybe to just wrap things up a little bit here is let's just kind of summarize some of our thoughts. So parasmos, this this Greek word, uh, it gets translated a number of different ways, uh, but it's got just like a number of layers to it. It's like, on the one hand, it can mean like temptation in the sense of being incited to sin. Um, It can also kind of refer to this idea of like suffering or grief or like a burden that you endure. Um, But kind of the big deal is that with Parasmos, it frequently has a, a like a second layer to it, that it's not just that someone is being like experiencing a temptation or experiencing a grief, but that there's specifically a higher purpose that that is actually serving, that you know, someone's character is going to be demonstrated or God's character is going to be demonstrated. I think that the intention of the person is the relevant factor here of like God doesn't tempt us or doesn't, uh, I, I should say, try us uh, in a way that it's, God doesn't want us to fail. Like, he's not like putting up these tests of being like, ah, yeah, like you should, you should definitely do this wicked evil thing that I hate. Like, no, like he, like his purposes in all of these things are to, you know, do something like demonstrate our character. And, uh, uh, and, and so I, I, like, I think that's really the, the important piece is that the, God's purposes in these trials and temptations are good. They are like for our good. If we could, you know, loop in uh, an idea from Romans 8 there, uh, which you can listen to a previous podcast of us talking about God's good
1: intentions for us. Well, all this being said, how then are we supposed to understand pyrosmos as it's used in 1 Corinthians 10, 13? Yeah, I
0: would say that I like, I, I, I tend to agree that I think that it should be rendered temptation. Like, I think it's it's definitely within uh uh what paul is talking about that the 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 thing is a desire to sin not like not like a suffering per se but actually like a like a desire to do something wrong that's totally within the context of what the israelites were doing that they were like you know being tempted to do something wicked and so i think that that's also what paul is talking about here with the community that the community is being tempted you know you could be overtaken by this desire to do something wicked But I I think Paul is—he's definitely talking about something specific in this case, and that's the argument that we made in the first half of the podcast, that it is specifically like a kind of faithlessness that's connected to us as the community of believers in our relationship with God. So this is uh, like the community— Uh, uh, being faithless toward God, of like uh, tolerating some kind of idolatry or participating in some kind of blasphemy or something like that, really seems to be the thing that Paul is focusing on here. Now, I I think at application, you could generalize that to, you know, more kinds of categories of sin, but that, that doesn't seem to really be Paul's point. Paul really seems to be focusing on things like idolatry, which is, you know, kind of when in verse 14, he says, therefore, flee from idolatry. It's, <laughs> I think that's really the immediate point that he's making is about something specific.
1: I think key to this as well is understanding that there are certain kinds of sins which lead to this breakdown of the covenant community in a way that other sins don't or tend not to at least, that, that you might need an especially egregious type of a certain sin to destroy a community. Whereas with something like idolatry or sexual sin, those can destroy things overnight. Right. Right. Um, like, and just think about like the family, right? Commit adultery on your spouse. Congratulations. You just destroyed your family in one night. <laughs> like, yeah. you, you could have been working to, to cultivate a relationship with your spouse and, and with your children for decades. And then in your 60s or 70s or whatever, destroy it in one night, right? And I think that's yeah. kind of the, the the reason these sins are highlighted. Idolatry is the same way. We become what we idolize, right? And so it's no surprise that the is- Israelites go so quickly from turning away from God to to worshiping these idols, right, to... All of a sudden later, even if they weren't doing this, even if this wasn't what the pagan revelry, the rise up to play means later in the story of Israel, they end up doing these sexual practices that are part of their worship, including, you know, the sacrifice of, of children. Right. So when you start idolizing things that are not God, they demand a lot out of you. <laughs> um, yeah. and so quickly, I mean, you know, I, it, I, I hate to say slippery slope because that's like a fallacy, but there really is a slippery slope <laughs> here in terms of morals, right? Yeah. You, you know, you you start justifying particular, there's some sins which are particularly bad, at least when it comes to their effects and their harms, right? Um, and, and not to go too much on an excursus on this, but I just think that the church really needs to recapture their theology of this. Because we are still stuck saying really stupid theological half-truths in the face of a culture that is, you know, giving the middle finger to God right now. Yeah. And Christians still say things like, well, okay, I know that culture is sexually um, insane right now. But, you know, um, Christians say mean things sometimes. And you're like, what What in the world theology causes you to equivocate those two things? Right? <laughs> like, yeah. Like, the, clearly, sexual morality is, is regularly described in the scriptures as one of the most important things to guard against, and we see why. Like, it's absolutely wrecking families, absolutely wrecking culture. So that's just my little excursus here. Like, there's, there's a reason Paul singles these out. Greed is another really common one that gets singled out in a lot of passages.
0: Yeah, for sure. And 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 I think that the the discussion that we could bring in about the uh like temptation as something that is like a trial or a test, I think that's also at play a little bit here in this passage. Um because so i mean paul really has been focusing on a lot of the negative case uh, up until now of like you know don't do sin because of the bad consequences uh that's those are sort of all of the examples that he gives of like you know the people were struck down they were you know their bodies were strewn through the wildernesses you know so he's he's very much making the negative case of like don't do these sins because they're terrible but there's plenty of other places where paul uh uh you know and we just went through them in the second section of like enduring and resisting sin because of the goods that it produces of like the proving of your faith or the growing of your faith. And so I think in this verse, there is a subtext to uh, like God's good intentions in the temptation that we're experiencing here. Because I mean, it really begs the question of like, why would God allow, quote, you know, not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear and also like provide the way of escape Unless his intention for us is to bear with this sin, and, you know, and to, or to sorry, to bear with this temptation and to, you know, overcome it, to not be overtaken by the temptation, but to, you know, overtake it. Uh and so I think that there is this this subtext of like there is a testing quality to it of us demonstrating our faith by bearing with this temptation, and that like God is enabling us to do it, uh, if that makes any sense. And I think this would be particularly relevant for the Corinthians where they are steeped in this wicked culture that surrounds them, like very perverse uh, uh, in its idolatry and sexual practice. And, you know, one might look at that situation and see that like, oh, no, the Corinthians, they were sort of set up for failure. This like church being put in the middle of this like terrible culture. Like, I don't know, why is anybody surprised that the Corinthian church is struggling with all of this wicked, terrible sin? Uh, you know, and and you you might even uh uh like tr- try to throw an accusation against God for like you know what is God doing tempting these the you know these uh this community and by putting them in corinth uh and but it, i I think what this verse is trying to encourage the Corinthian church in is saying that like God has a design and a purpose for putting you in the surroundings, like he wants you to utilize this way of escape to bear with this temptation so that you can demonstrate the righteousness and holiness of the church community and in turn demonstrate God's own righteous and holy character as well. And so I like if I would say I think that is really what this verse is trying to communicate is as the church we should be resisting this temptation and God is going to enable us as this community to do so and that there is a purpose for it. It's you know not only for our benefit but also to highlight and demonstrate God's good character and the righteousness that he has given to us. It's time for
1: the other meat. Well, application as usual tends to just flow pretty naturally from our episodes. And um, so let's just hit on some of these key points uh, before we take off for the day. Um, first off is, you know, pursue faithfulness to God and resist sin. I mean, this is the obvious implication of the passage. And that's why people memorize this verse, Right there's a way of escape. You never have to sin, you know? Um, and, and so don't, right. This is, this is something that we should, we should be seriously pursuing holiness and we shouldn't be taking excuses, you know, from ourselves, from our own hearts about this. Like it's, it now is the day to, to do this. Now is the day to, to be holy. Right. And, and yeah, there's no reason to, to not pursue it with all our hearts.
0: Yeah, yeah, and not in and the application point number 2 is that that's not a uh you know saying, you know, just just do it, do it good next time, uh like it's, you know, something in your own strength that you just need to like muster up this, you know, goodness in your own heart, but that like it is God who provides that way of escape for you. And so that when, you know, you as an individual are experiencing temptation, I think the one of the applications of this verse is that you should be, like, depending on the Lord for that way of escape, that your holiness is not something that just comes from you. It's something that God creates in you through the process of sanctification. So, like, resist sin, but, like, let's be depending on the Lord for that.
1: Absolutely. And also on your church, for a third point, right? Because we've been talking about the corporate gathering of the Lord's people. Encourage your church to faithfulness and um, be encouraged by it, Um, right? So, like, we shouldn't tolerate faithlessness in ourselves or in others. Um, we should be looking out for each other, right? Uh, James says, if anyone wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, uh, let him know that whoever saves a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So this is not a, um, a by any stretch of the imagination, a justification for being a moral busybody. Uh, <laughs> you definitely, we're talking about being gracious. We're talking about, you know, um, overlooking other people's faults. But if there's something, I mean, you know, if if you are in a Phineas circumstance, probably don't grab your spear. But like you do need to do something drastic about it, right? If you're if your brother or sister is walking down the road to ruin, it is not loving to say nothing. Um that's a point I think we brought up on this podcast before, but but this passage also leads us in that direction. We have we might only be culpable for our own sins, but we are responsible for the sins of the people around us who we love, we are responsible to to help help them. Um, so, yeah, this is an important part of the church. I, I think here's a, here's a, perhaps a fourth application point as well that goes along with the third one. Oftentimes, we think of temptation as simply this like feeling that arises in our hearts that we need to work really hard to pray away or to like think of you know, think of something else, do something else, right? Well that is sometimes how temptation works. And and I think that we get that from like the addiction model of um understanding habitual sins, right? Someone who's abusing drugs, right? Um or whatever, like something like that that keeps returning to to drugs. They need to resist a very strong emotional impulse to to do it, right? That's how they they get off of it. But I think we what we miss in that that sort of like stereotypical addiction model of of sin. I think we miss that a lot of the time in order to stop sinning, you just need to get a community around you of some sort, right? Often you need to take some active steps to change the circumstances you're in so that you're not there. Like even with drug abuse, I'm no expert, but what I've heard is that rehab is actually not very successful (laughs) because people end up going back to the same life they used to live before they went to rehab. And then their old connections and the old things they used to do bring back those old neural connections that make them want to do the drugs right but instead what's helpful is if the person gets into a different circumstance, like finding a new group of friends, moving uh, finding a new job right just different different things and, and a different way to kind of rebuild and so in the same way i don't I think temptation thinking of temptation as like a how do I resist this really strong emotional impulse in the moment, well, that is, that's your last line of defense. That's what you do in an emergency when you're being overtaken, right? You were unsuspecting and the temptation's there. That's what you do at the last, the last moment. But you, there's a million things you can do before that that are helpful, like finding a different circumstance to be in, right? Confessing your sin. Just like if you have a habitual sin, like tell somebody, right? Like tell your pastor, um, you know, get, get some, some sort of accountability. It doesn't have to be a big struggle session, <laughs> right? Just get some accountability. Say, I have a problem. I need help, right? And that'll go a long way, right? So I think this, is, this goes along with the whole community thing. Like you need to, you, all of us need to make structural changes, not just emotional impulse decisions uh, in order to be more holy. That's, that's something I feel strongly about. It's time for milk, not solid food. All right, well, um, to encourage us on this route uh, toward avoiding falling in the wilderness, like our many of our Israelite brethren from the past, let's uh, read this passage from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely Well, in the words of the
0: immortal philosopher Porky Pig, that's all, folks. We thank you for joining us. If anything you heard today has sent you into a blind theological rage, feel free to lambast us on social media. Alternatively, if you liked what you heard, have Bible verses you want us to break down, questions you think we can answer, or ideas for future podcasts, you can send them to the John 315 podcast at gmail.com. That's John 315 podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.